scripture is Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received from me, or heard in me, or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Well, let's begin with the word of prayer as we prepare to dig into the word together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the peace you give us through the cross that we just celebrated, that we have peace with you. And thank you that you offer us a deeper kind of peace than the world can give. But Lord, so often we don't live in that peace. And I pray that today your word would be used of you to help us learn to live differently, to live in the peace that you offer. We pray in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. This week was the 40th anniversary of Woodstock. Anybody here that was at Woodstock? Oh, too bad. (laughs) Talked to somebody from this church that was on their way to New York and their car broke down in the Midwest somewhere, so he didn't quite make it. Otherwise, he might have been there. He was on his way. Woodstock was an interesting event. It was a gathering that was meant to be a few thousand people. It ended up being a half million, mostly young people, who were longing for peace. They lived at a time that was fairly chaotic. The Vietnam War was going on, very unpopular. There had been two major assassinations just recently, Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy. People were stirred up. People were frustrated. And so this huge gathering had the cry, let's just give peace a chance. And they felt that they could get peace, many of them, through two things, freedom and love. If we could just get free from all the restraints of morality and of authority and just live freely, we could experience real peace. And if we could just have community, have love, really love each other and just get along, we could have peace in our souls. Unfortunately, it didn't work that way. Many of those people today are living broken lives or they've simply bought into the system and they're just living like the rest of us, just giving up on peace and hoping to survive in life and just get by. You see, all of us as human beings are struggling for peace. We long for that. We 
want that in our lives. And the world says, well, you can have peace if you can somehow get peaceful circumstances or if you can somehow get an inner calm and we can't seem to find that, so we try through medication and all kinds of ways to find peace, but life is still pretty crazy. We still can't find it. In the midst of all that, Jesus said something very interesting in the book of John to his disciples again as they were gathered in that upper room. In John chapter 14, verse 27, he says this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Jesus offers us, his disciples, but also to us, I believe, a gift. He says, I give it to you. I give you peace. He offers us a gift of peace. And he says it's not as the world gives. It's something totally different. It's supernatural. It's different than anything you can find in the world, anywhere in the world. But he says it's a way to deal with a troubled heart, to free you from fear. It's a deeper kind of peace. It's probably the word shalom that he used. It means more than just feeling an inner calm. It means there's a deep assurance that all is well, even if circumstances are crazy. Many Christians, though, are saying, and I've said this too, okay, Jesus, you promised us that kind of peace, but where is it? I try to find it, but... I'm struggling just as much as everybody else. And I feel anxious about the economy and about my family and myself. And how do I find the kind of peace that you promise? Well, this section of Scripture in Philippians chapter 4, Paul is writing to a church in Philippi that he wants them to understand practically how to live in the peace that Jesus offers. They lived in a hostile world like we do, a hostile Roman culture, the empire. They were a small persecuted church. They were a very poor church. They were struggling to survive individually and as a group. And yet Paul says, you can have peace. Well, that's a word we need to hear, right? (laughs) How do you do that, Paul? Well, he gives us some clear guidelines on how to have peace. And if you want to summarize it in one phrase, I would put it this way. Peace is resting in our Father's loving control. Peace is resting in our Heavenly Father's loving control. Now, that's easier said than done. I understand that. And I think that's why we need some practical guidance on how to get there. And as Paul goes on, I think he addresses three thieves, three enemies we face that rob us as Christians of our peace. Those three enemies are conflict with one another, Fear or anxiety. And then third, discouragement. So we'll look at each of those and see how Paul helps us to deal with all three of those. First, the answer to conflict. Begins this way in chapter 4. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Now, I think this really ends the section uh, was covered last week, but... Notice what it does. It gives us an example of Paul's love for the Philippians, his care for them, his delight in them, his 
beloved sense of who they are. You see, that's critical as we go into addressing conflict with one another. So what's the answer to conflict? He first points to the conflict. He points it out. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't avoid it. He says in verse 2, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord, to agree, is the NIV. Literally, it's to think the same thing in the Lord. I urge Euodia and Syntyche. Now, think about this. I think that Paul's been pointing to this conflict all the way through the book of Philippians. He's been working up because he's talked a lot about unity and getting along in the body and how important it is that we see ourselves as part of the body of Christ and we are in unity together because that's where the life of Christ gets released in this world, in this culture. And he's been teaching a lot about that. He says, have this attitude in Christ, same attitude that Christ has of being a servant, putting others first, etc., etc., But now, imagine sitting there in that church in Philippi and you've received a letter from Paul and you're going through all this wonderful teaching and suddenly these two women are sitting there and they hear their names. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to get along, to think the same thing. Well, that would get your attention, wouldn't it? (laughs) I think Paul's been building up to this. We don't know what the conflict was, but these Women, it's clear, were very influential in the church there in Philippi. They had important ministries. They had worked together with Paul, he says, fellow strugglers for the gospel. They had significant ministries. And this conflict had apparently been going on for quite a while because at least there had been time for Paul, someone to come from Philippi, tell Paul about it in a Roman prison and for him to write a letter and then go back and it's still going on. We don't know what the conflict was about. Was it some kind of theological disagreement? Was it some disagreement about ministry and maybe who was in charge or who wasn't? Maybe it was priorities. Maybe it was use of money in the body. Maybe it was some kind of personal hurt. One of them had said something that had hurt the other and it had created this disagreement and sides were being drawn. Maybe it was a family struggle. Maybe it was a fight over the carpet color. We don't know. But we know it's significant. And we can assume, I think, because this is the way it usually goes, is that both of them were convinced they were right, and both of them were convinced that the other person was wrong. So what do you do when that happens? We've all... We've been in the body of Christ very long, experienced conflict with others. How do we deal with that? How does Paul deal with it? You know, it is hard to get along. I wanted to read a little poem. Many of you have heard this, but I, it's just a, it points this out. To live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's a different story. And it's true, it's hard, it's hard to get along. We do have conflict. That's part of living in a fallen world and being part of the body of Christ. So how do we deal with that? Well, Paul deals with conflict by remembering, by helping them to remember. The way to deal with conflict is by remembering. It strikes me as Paul goes on where he says, 
I urge you to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement and also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. As he addresses this, you'll notice something. He doesn't bring up the conflict. He doesn't talk about the issue. He doesn't try to negotiate who's right, who's wrong. You know, let's work this out together. He totally ignores the issue. He totally ignores the issue. And in fact, what he does is he points them to greater priorities. He helps them remember that they are on a mission. They are servants of the living God and there's a kingdom of God at stake. He's trying to help them see there are more important things than this issue. I know when we get in a conflict, we think that's the most important thing, but he's saying, no, it's not. Remember, we're here to live for the gospel. It's kind of like a football season's about to start. And you can imagine being in the huddle and you're at a crucial part of the game. You've got to make this first down if you're going to win this game. And you're in the huddle. And imagine one of the guys in the huddle saying, hey, uh, you know, Joe over there, he's got a lot of grass stains on his uniform. And it's really bugging me. And I don't think he's a good representation of our team. Now, if you're the quarterback, you'd kind of say, what? Why are you even dealing? That has nothing to do with what's important here. We are on a mission. And I think that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, you know, I know it seems important to you, but it's trivial. Your conflict is trivial, and I want to point you to greater realities. Your fellow soldiers in the kingdom of God, your fellow workers. So he reminds them that they're on a mission. Secondly, he reminds them that they're on a team. Your fellow workers, we're in this together. You've worked with me and you've worked with Clement and many others, and we're in this, and what you do isn't between just the two of you. It affects all of us. So ladies, get over it. Let it go. Remember you're part of a team. Third, he says something very profound at the end of verse 3. He says, whose names are written in the book of life. He says, remember your destiny. Remember that, yeah, you're having some conflict, but both of you, your names are written in the book of life. You're his children. You're going to dwell in eternity together. Does it really matter what color the carpet is? Ultimately, does it really matter that they said some hurtful words to you? Let it go. Get back on board with living for the kingdom. Let go of that minor issue. Don't focus on that anymore, but focus on your destiny. When I was 16 years old, I had just gotten my license. And my parents decided they'd give me an opportunity to drive a long distance. I'd never driven a long distance before. So they gave me the stretch between Bend, Oregon, and Burns. If you know that stretch, it's straight, it's desert, there's nothing out there. Well, about an hour and a half into this trip, as we're driving along, my dad's sitting next to me, my mom's in the back seat. Dad is falling asleep. My mom keeps waking him up. He's never driven before. Wake up! (laughs) Okay. My dad drifts off again. Well, about an hour and a half into the trip, I remember very clearly, vividly, I didn't fall asleep, but I just remember I began to focus on the floor. 
I was thinking about the dimmer button, you know, on those old cars, old Pontiacs. I was thinking about, you know, it's not dark out, but if it was, and I had my brights on, you know, I'd have to dim them if a car, and I'm thinking about and I'm looking at the floor. And I began to drift off the road, going 70 miles, 70 miles an hour across the desert, big drop off. And my mom yelled. Dad was asleep, but she wasn't. <laughs> and definitely got my attention. I stopped. I was shaking. I didn't want to drive anymore. But they said, no, you've got to keep going, which I think was good. They forced me to drive the rest of the way to Burns. So I wouldn't be afraid, but I would learn how to deal with this. You see, it's a good picture for us that when we get in a conflict, we start focusing on the things right around us instead of keeping our eyes on where we're going. Keeping our eyes on the important things instead of the things right around us that seem more important sometimes. Paul is saying, remember your destiny. Remember what you're about. You're part of a mission. You're part of the kingdom of God. So don't hang on to what you're hanging on to. Then he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Remember to rejoice in the Lord, to find your joy in him. You see, you cannot rejoice in the Lord and hang on to a conflict with someone else. You can't. Because if you're rejoicing in the Lord, you're focusing on how God is at work and all that he's done for you, all that he's doing for you, and all that he's promised you in the future. And if that's what you're doing, and notice he says rejoice in the Lord when? Always. If you are doing that and saying, wow, Lord, you have saved me. I don't deserve it. I'm a sinner, but you've saved me. You've given me life. You've given me your Holy Spirit. You're working in my life. You've changed me in certain ways and I've got a long ways to go, but you're working in me today. You're caring for me and you've promised me so much that you're going to stick with me. And, you know, if you're focusing on that and you're finding your joy in that, the conflict fades. So Paul says, remember to rejoice in the Lord. And then finally, remember to forbear. He says in verse 5, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. That word for gentle is a word that means to, as one definition has said, to, uh, it's the patient bearing of abuse. The patient bearing of abuse. Now again, we're not to just put up with severe sexual, physical, emotional abuse, okay? But I think what he's saying there by using this word is that we as believers do hurt one another. We do say things that harm us. We have battles with one another. It's, it is a struggle, right? Life together is not easy. We're learning to trust him, but we're not totally trusting him. We're not there yet. So we do hurt one another, and he's saying, let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. Let, let it go. Put up with it. Forbear. Patiently endure when others hurt you. Don't make an issue of it. Remember to let it go. 
You see, if we will do these things that he's just told us to remember, remember our mission, remember we're part of the kingdom of God, remember that we're part of a team, remember to rejoice in him, remember, remember, if we will remember, then suddenly the conflict loses its significance and we have our peace restored. In fact, he goes on to say that in a few minutes. And how do we do that? How are we able to forbear when people harm us? Notice that little phrase at the end of the verse, the Lord is near. It's because if you hurt me, I don't have to deal with you. The Lord is at work. I can trust him to take care of it. I can trust him to deal with you. I don't have to fight for my rights or hurt you back or whatever. Let the Lord deal with it. He knows what's best for you and for me. Therefore, I'm able to forbear. So when you face conflict in the body that could rob you of your peace, remember. Remember these things. Another thief that would rob us of our peace and often does is fear. Fear or anxiety. Be anxious for nothing, he says. Uh, Let me say that this kind of anxiety he's talking about is not the normal kind of nervousness that is that shot of adrenaline when you have a responsibility you need to take care of. That's a good thing. That's a gift from God. That energizes you. Every time I get up and preach, I've been doing it a long time, but I still get nervous. And I thank God for that because it helps me do my best. Okay, that's not something that we want to get rid of. He's also not talking about a severe anxiety disorder where you have severe panic attacks and such anxiety that is ongoing that debilitates you so you cannot function in life. That's something that needs greater treatment and perhaps medication. But he's talking about the normal kind of anxiety that we all experience where we worry about the future. We worry about what might happen. We worry about gee, I'm so concerned about my daughter going off to college and what I'm worried about what kind of choices she'll make and she won't be under my control anymore and what's she going to do and where's she going to go and what kind of friends is she going to have and you worry and you worry. And studies have shown that when we worry like that about the future, 95% of what we worry about never comes true. Think about the waste of energy that is. Wasting our energy, worrying about things that will never come true. And so Jesus in chapter 6, and we don't have time to spend on it really, but I want to read a couple verses of Matthew chapter 6. He deals with this at length, this whole be anxious, the anxiousness. And he says in verse 31 of Matthew 6, do not worry, same word, be anxious in our passage, Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. But your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What Jesus is suggesting there is that worry is a completely pagan approach to life. It's a pagan approach to life. It's seeking to take care of yourself. It, I think for all of us, or most of us anyway, when we worry, it's, it's our attempt to control what's coming. 
If I worry about it enough, then I won't be caught off guard by what happens and I'll feel some sense of control and we'll feel some protection so we're not kind of hit broadside by something we didn't expect. So if I just worry enough, then I'll feel like I'm more in control. But the reality is we're not. And it robs us of our peace. And we use our energy trying to protect ourselves instead of living for the kingdom of God. And he says, that's pagan. So he says, be anxious for nothing. Nothing. Be anxious for nothing. Another little poem that you may have heard. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, Friend, I think it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. Jesus wants us to have peace. And Paul here gives us a very practical process for resting in the loving control of our heavenly father. How do we do it? Three steps. And it all is under the heading of prayer, to pray. How do we deal with fear? How do we deal with anxiety? Prayer. Now, this is one of the most memorized passages of the Bible. Many of you have memorized it, but it sometimes can be hard to apply. He says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication or petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Three steps. To pray. And I see this as extending our hands to God. We've got our problem, our concern in our hand. And we lift it up to Him. We say, Lord, I'm really concerned about my daughter. I'm concerned about my parents. I'm concerned about the situation at work. I'm anxious about it. So we pray. We lift it up to Him. Secondly, we have supplication or petition. That simply means to make the request. I think that's pictured by opening our hand and saying, Lord, this is what I want you to do with this. Please protect my daughter as she goes to school. Give her good friends. Please, Lord, protect my aging parent. Help them not make foolish choices that would be harmful or whatever it might be. You, you pray for specific things to happen. And the third step is thanksgiving. And this is where we often fail. What we do is we pray, we lift it up to him. Please do this, God. And then we close our fists and we hang on to it. And we wonder why we're still worried and why we're anxious. But to thank him is to say, and Lord, I thank you for what you will do. I thank you that you're already involved in my daughter's life. I thank you that you've already made the way. I thank you that you have a plan, that you love her more than I do. And what that does, it allows us to let it go. Now, that doesn't mean you won't have to do it again when you get worked up about it again. But that thankfulness is an act of faith where you rest the issue in his hands. You see, that's critical and that's the important third step. And I want you right now to, with me, think of something that you're anxious about, that you're especially concerned about. And I want you to take a moment, extend your hand. I want you to do... Extend your hand like this and think of that being in your hand, in your fist, and lift that up to God in prayer. Just take a moment and do that right now and tell him what you're concerned about.
And now open your hand, palm up, and tell him what you want him to do, what you long for him to do with that situation. And now thank him for what he will do, whether it's what you ask or not, that he loves the people involved, he loves you more than you could possibly love yourself, that he is at work in the situation. Thank him for his answer in his timing, in his way, not your will but his be done, and turn your hand over and let it go. As an act of faith, drop it into his care. Amen. Jesus says if we do that as an act of faith, verse 7, the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He says the result is the peace that Jesus talked about will be yours. It's a promise that if an act of faith you've done this, you've turned your anxiety, your worry over to him, that there's a peace of God that will guard you. Now, he's writing in the context of the Roman Empire. There was something called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And they said, hey, we have peace because of the powerful Roman military. We are at peace, and that's what gives peace to people's lives. And Paul says, no. What will guard your hearts and minds is his peace. His peace that comes as you learn to rest in your Father's loving control. To give it to Him, to trust in Him. Because you will be attacked in your mind and in your heart, in your emotions and in your thinking. Satan will try to disrupt that peace. He doesn't want us to be at peace. And he says that peace will guard you in those battles of life. And you'll have to go back to it. You'll have to go back and pray again and go to thankfulness. But... It will guard you as you learn to rest practically in your Father's loving control. The last battle that we face, address in this passage, that robs us of our peace is discouragement. As we look around at our world, as we think about our lives, as we look at the economic situation, as we look around us, we get discouraged. And that can rob us of our peace, can it? Because it is discouraging as you look at the world and the struggles there are and and our own struggles and our own failures. Everything is twisted and tainted by sin, including me, (laughs) including ourselves. And that can be very discouraging. It robs us of our peace. Paul's answer to that discouragement is to concentrate. Concentrate our minds and our wills. It takes effort. You want to know what's most important. If you want to experience peace, that assurance, that rest in Him, you need to discipline your mind. And he says that in verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, pure, lovely, of good repute, if there is any excellence, that's moral excellence, if anything worthy of praise, lovely, beautiful, ponder these things. My translation says, let your mind dwell on these things, but it's really focus on them, concentrate on them. Now, we don't have time to explore each of these and and the wonder of these that he's talking about, but if you take them all together, I think he's saying this. 
as you walk through life, you can either focus on what's discouraging or you can focus your mind on the evidences of God, the tracks of God, how He's working in you, in others, in culture, in the world. And you can look for the hand of God at work. I've done a fair amount of hunting. And when you go hunting, you look for evidence of the animal. You look for tracks. You look for broken branches. You look for all kinds of things where they've bedded down, etc. And you, you look for those evidences. And because your eye is trained, you see them. And he's saying, that's what you need to do in life. Look for the evidences of God. The moral uprightness. You can look around in our culture and realize, wow, look at how people turned out to, to seek and care for somebody like Robert Manuel and help that family. And that's a wonderful thing. That's, that's something beautiful. People's care. And you can look in our culture and you can see all kinds of things. And you can either look at the fact that, yeah, you blow it and mess up a lot, or you can look for the evidences of God working in your life changing you, molding you. And he says, concentrate on that. Concentrate on the evidences, the tracks of God in your life, in other people's lives, in the world. Whatever is lovely, worthy of praise, focus on that. Concentrate on that. And that will deal with your discouragement. Secondly, not just concentrate your mind, but concentrate your will. He says, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. That's a choice of the will. Don't get caught up in just being frozen because of discouragement, but instead, choose to do the next right thing. If you want to have peace in your life, choose to do the next right thing. Focus on where God is at work. Look for His hand. And secondly, do the next right thing. Don't worry about all the things that are going to happen in the future and everything. Just do the next right thing. Practice it. Do it. And he says something amazing as he ends this chapter, this passage. And the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. That's really profound. Because I think what he's saying here is that peace is not in circumstances. It's not even in a feeling. It's not any of that. It's a person. And all that we've talked about this morning is designed to help you focus on Him, rest in Him, depend on Him, get your focus off your circumstances and get your focus on Him. And as you do that, you'll draw close to Him and the God of peace, the one who is peace, will be with you. I want to end this morning with just part of an email. The Tuckers have been through an awful lot. And uh, it's great to have you guys here this morning. Valerie and Adam and Josh. We've been praying a lot for them. Valerie sent an email in her updates and she said this a few days back. As I was waiting in the waiting room, it was one of those times of needing peace. In my Bible's concordance, I looked at verses that pertain to peace, and the one in Philippians 4 stuck out to me. So I looked it up. (laughs) And she quotes this passage that we just studied. And she highlights that last verse, that last phrase. 
and the God of peace will be with you. And Valerie wrote, and it really ministered to me, I've read that passage before, obviously, but the last phrase has never stood out to me before like it did this morning. I just felt like God was sitting there with me, waiting for the test to be done. That's what's so cool about God's Word. It's living and active, and although you can read something dozens of times and know it, God will bring it to life at the time you need. You need peace? Go back to this passage. We all need it, and the answer is in focusing on Him, remembering the mission. Remember who you are. (laughs) Let go of the conflict. Focusing on prayer and giving it to Him and letting it go with a thankful heart, knowing He'll do what's best. And concentrating. Concentrating your mind and your will on Him. And the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for this encouraging passage to know that peace is not just something out there, but it's something we can experience. Lord, help us to be people of peace who learn to rest in your loving control that the world might be amazed that in a world of chaos we have your peace because we have you, the God of peace. In Jesus' name, amen.